Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 19 is our sermon text for this morning. Uh, If you've been here with us for a while, you know we've been working through the book of Genesis section by section uh, over a number of months. I don't remember what month it was when we started, but it's been a little bit. And uh, we've made it to chapter 8 this morning. Uh, We've been in the the Noah story, the flood story, for uh, a few weeks, uh, and we come to uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. Let me pray for us before we read that together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you, Uh, we come to your word, we come to hear from you, we come to receive from you, we pray that you would teach us from your word, that you would uh, pour out your spirit on us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to believe and hearts to receive all that you have said in the scriptures, and that most of all we would see Jesus in all of his glory, that we would trust in him more fully that we would rest in his grace, and that we would live in light of it to your glory and honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 8, beginning in verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth." So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Well, it seems like it will never end. 
Uh, you've already heard us mention multiple times this morning in our announcement, in our prayer, uh, all that's going on with COVID. And just when we thought things were getting back to normal, the Delta variant shows up and there's another round of mask mandates. One news headline said, healthcare workers face frontline fatigue. And I think we can all understand that, can't we? We experience it ourselves, right? Fatigue, lockdown fatigue, mask fatigue, social distance fatigue, we're just tired. When will it all end? It's not really that unusual, of course. I mean, the scale of things is unusual, but sicknesses come and go, and the brokenness of this age has been around since the fall. The longing we feel is the longing we should always feel. This world is not as it should be. Something is terribly wrong. Noah, I think, would sympathize. He was stuck on a boat in the midst of the greatest natural disaster the world has ever seen for a year, an entire year. Now, I know the pandemic has been going on longer, but despite how it might feel sometimes, you are not stuck on a boat that smells like a zoo. Nine months in, Noah might wish he were wearing a mask. The question is, what enables us to persevere? What enables us to keep going? What enables us to not give up? What gives us hope? What we will see this morning is this. What was true of Noah was more true of Jesus and is true of those who look to Jesus. That We are remembered, washed, and waiting. But first, this story. Uh, do you remember where we are in the story? Uh, we're in the middle of the flood. Humanity had made a mess out of the world. Nothing was as it should be. Human beings had become violent and destructive, and their violent and destructive nature had brought ruin on the earth, so much so that God was grieved that he had made man. Because of his love for the world he made, God decided to put an end to the violence and destruction, and he would send a flood to wipe out humanity. But because of his love for humanity, God decided to save Noah and his family that they might repopulate the earth, to, to start over as a new Adam, as it were. And so Noah builds an ark, a large boat, about the size and shape of some container ships today. He loads two of every kind of animal onto the boat, and finally he and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives enter the boat. And the floodwaters come. For 40 days and 40 nights it rains. Everything on the earth is covered. Every living thing on the earth, every land animal, every bird, every human being dies, except Noah, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives, and the animals with them on the ark. And there they sit, in the ark, for 40 days, battered and tossed by the rain, wind, and waves, and then the stillness, just sitting, dead in the water on the great sea. And that is where we find them, sitting, waiting, wondering when it will all end. I ran across a line this week in a book by the 19th century Jewish Christian scholar Alfred Edersheim, and it's one of those quotes that was so poetic it seemed out of place. Edersheim said, it is difficult to believe in fierce sunshine on the afternoon of a long gray day. 
Noah was in the afternoon of a long gray day. And we find ourselves as a country and as an international community in the afternoon of a long gray day. In fact, all of history since the fall has been the afternoon of a long gray day. It's hard to believe in fierce sunshine. You may have noticed uh, the first two words in our outline this morning are passive verbs, right? Remembered and washed. And there's a reason for that. Because what allows us to believe in fierce sunshine is not something we do, but something God does. God remembers and we are remembered. God washes and we are washed. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. We, we're going to look at remembered, washed, and waiting. First, remembered. Do you ever feel forgotten? Uh, what are you going through right now? Uh, what, what trials do you face? What difficulties? Does it sometimes feel like no one cares, like no one remembers, like no one is even thinking about you, maybe even not God? When troubles come, uh, one of the first questions we ask is, where is God? Where is God in this? Has he forgotten me? It's actually not a bad question. Uh, Psalm 77, verse 9 says, has God forgotten to be gracious? Psalm 13, verse 1 goes further. Uh, The psalmist says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 44, verse 24 says, why do you hide your face Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Now, the truth is God has not forgotten. Isaiah 49, verse 15, uh, God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, says the Lord. God cannot forget his people. And this is where our text begins this morning. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. God remembers. And not just Noah here, however, right? But the animals as well, it goes on to say. Such is the, the tender care of our father that he cares for the animals as well as man. And he remembers now, God remembering is a, is a theme in Scripture. You'll find it uh, punctuating uh, throughout the Bible. He remembers Abraham and saves Lot from the destruction of Sodom. He remembers Rachel and opens her womb. He remembers Israel in their slavery and brings them out with a mighty hand. God remembers David. In Psalm 56, David is being attacked by his enemies. And David says this in verse 8, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? David says God is aware of every sleepless night and every shed tear. God knows. God remembers his people. God does not forget his people, which means, Christian, God has not forgotten you. There's something else that God does not forget. God does not forget his covenant. In Exodus chapter 2, uh, verses 23 to 24, we, we read that the, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. 
And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God repeats that later in Exodus. In chapter 6, verse 5, he says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And this is an important point, right? Because God remembering us could be terrifying. I mean, I'm a sinner after all. If God remembers me, he might remember my sin. And if he remembers my sin, he might remember his justice. And if God remembers my sin and his justice, I might never be remembered again. But God remembers us because God remembers his covenant. That is, he remembers his promises. God remembers his promises to his people, and he will never go back on them. God remembers. And this, is, this for us is, is fuel for our prayers, isn't it? It is right for us to remind God of his promises, to pray his word back to him. Not because we think that he might have forgotten, but to ask for him to fulfill now, to save now, to show up now. God, remember your people. God, remember your promises. God, do for us what you have said you will do. God, remember, show up, and act. That is what God does when he remembers, after all. Uh, God's remembering is not an empty act. Uh, he, he doesn't remember us like you might remember what you had for breakfast this morning. When God remembers, he acts on our behalf. That's what happens here, again, uh, in chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Right? God remembered Noah, and immediately he began to act on his behalf. Of course, as we work through Scripture, the ultimate moment of remembering is when Jesus is in the grave. And think about it. Like Noah, Jesus faced judgment, except Jesus was not in the boat. He faced the fullness of God's anger for sin, for our sin, for your sin, and for my sin. But God did not abandon him to the grave. The Father did not forget, which really moves us to our next point, washed. What do you long for in the broken parts of your life, in the, that long afternoon of a, a gray day? What, what, where is the hurt? Where are the broken relationships? Where is the misunderstanding or the anger or the pain or the confusion? What do you want in those places? You want things to be made right. Uh, you want them to be made new. This is what God is doing in the flood. The floodwaters can actually be looked at from two uh, seemingly opposite perspectives. On the one hand, they are the waters of judgment. The waters wiped out the wicked and the violent. We saw in chapter 7 that the waters systematically undid the created order. But on the other hand, they are the waters of cleansing and new creation and new birth. And we see that from the, from the start of verse 1 here in chapter 8. Verse 1 tells us that God made a wind blow over the earth. Well, the, the word wind there is the same word translated spirit in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And so here the Spirit comes again, or at least a manifestation of the Spirit's presence. A wind blows. Think of the, the wind that filled the upper room on the day of Pentecost, right? A wind blows, and the waters subside, and the Spirit brings new creation. And then just as uh, we saw in the flood that, that creation day by day was undone, creation is, is reborn, as it were, remade 
Uh, first in verse 2, that the separation between the waters above and the waters below is reformed. Day 2 of creation is, is, is redone. And then verse 5, the mountaintops appear, right? Dry land appears. The separation between the waters and the earth, day three of creation. And then in verses 7 through 12, the birds come out from the ark, day five of creation. Finally, in verse 17, the land animals and man, day six. And the same blessing command is given again, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so all things are being made new, that the world has become a new creation. And there is such a distinction in the minds of the biblical writers that Peter calls the world before the flood in 2 Peter 3, the world that then was. And he says that world perished. And he contrasts that with the heavens and earth that now exist, which are awaiting the final judgment. All things were made new. At least it appeared so, though we will see that this creation too will have its fall. But for now, there's newness. And here's what we see here. When God remembers his people, when he remembers his covenant, he sends his spirit and brings newness. That's what happened in the days of Noah, pictured by the wind, which pushed back the waters of judgment. That's what happened to Jesus when the Father remembered the Son, remembered Jesus' righteousness, remembered the Father's covenant promises, and sent the Spirit to raise Jesus from the dead. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came like a rushing wind on the church. That's what happens in every believer's life when the Father remembers the work of His Son on our behalf and sends His Spirit to make us new and draw us to Himself. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have been washed by the renewing power of the Spirit. That's what we read in Titus earlier. Uh, in Titus 3, this is a different part of Titus maybe, Titus 3 verses 4 and 5, uh, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of re regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, whatever struggles you may still experience, God has raised his son from the dead, inaugurating a new creation, and has made you a believer in Jesus, new by his spirit. The new creation has broken into the present. You are a new creature in Christ. The world may not be new, but you are, according to Scripture. And this means, first and foremost, a newness in your relationship to the Father. Christ has taken away your sin. You have passed through judgment on the cross. The world has been put right with the Father once more. It also means you are new in your ability to walk in newness of life. And so you, we, we are new, Scripture says. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And this doesn't mean everything in life is suddenly lollipops and roses, right? Life is still hard. Much is still broken. But you can respond to life in new ways because you are a part of God's new creation by the presence of his spirit in you. Now, I don't know about you, but I often feel like I respond in the same old ways. Uh, I, I quickly get frustrated or fearful or indulgent or angry or disappointed or depressed. Why is that? Why do we keep responding in the same old ways if we ourselves are a new creation in Christ? 
Well, because even though we are genuinely new, we are not perfectly new. Right? Rather, we are being renewed, the Scripture says, which really brings us to our last point about waiting. The waiting. Why don't we like waiting? Probably lots of reasons. I think one is because it feels so fruitless. We are wasting time when we could be doing something. We're so used to instant everything nowadays. I mean, why wait? In fact, even when we are waiting nowadays, we're normally doing something else, right? We, we check our email, we play the latest mind-numbing game, or catch up on our favorite TV show all on our phone while waiting in line at the DMV. We don't really have to wait at all. We just busy ourselves until the next event comes along. But waiting is actually part of the Christian life. And for Noah, at least, there was no option for checking his Facebook page during the wait. There is this really odd story, though, in this chapter uh, of Noah and the birds. It's one of those things that gives the story, uh, right, the air of truth, because who would make this up and why? And in fact, the Babylonian flood story also has the Noah character send out birds. Why? Because it really happened. The real question is why? Well, first, uh, so Noah sends out a raven. Uh, The raven, the the commentators tell me, is a stronger bird than the dove, but it also eats carrion, that is, dead flesh. And so it leaves the ark and it flies about, uh, picking at the dead flesh that remained on the mountain peaks that were now visible above the flood. The dove, however, is different. It goes out looking for vegetation, but initially it finds none, and so it returns. Then we have this really touching scene where Noah actually puts out his hand and takes the dove and brings her back into the ark. And it's odd because it's so specific. I mean, we we have whole months glossed over in a verse or two, and then the camera slows down for us to watch Noah draw in this dove. Why? Well, some say it shows Noah's tender care for the animals. He had been living with them in the boat for almost a year at this point. He had been their caretaker. He had been the new Adam who watched over the animals of the earth. And so this shows Noah's tenderness and love even for this bird. Proverbs 12 verse 10 says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. Scripture commends care for animals, and Noah here is a picture of that. The dove goes out a second time, and this time it finds an olive branch. And this is an important sign, and you'll recognize a a dove with an olive branch in its beak as a sign, but it's not a sign of peace. It's a sign of new creation. The world is again producing vegetation. All things are being made new. But the fact that the dove comes back shows that there's still no good place to settle down. And so Noah waits one more week, and he sends the dove out one last time. This time, the dove doesn't return, indicating that the world is ready. And yet, Noah doesn't disembark. He takes the cover off the ark. He looks at the ground. Uh, It's dried up, he sees, but he doesn't get out yet. Now, historically, interestingly, some Jewish scholars have actually criticized Noah for this. Uh, He he should have run into God's new world, they said. There's a time for waiting and a time for action, they say, and and this is a time for action, right? The land is dry. He should have just plowed out, not waited, 
but plowed out into the world. But there's actually, there's none of that in the text. There's no, there's no uh, censure of Noah for his waiting. Noah waits until verse 16, and God says to Noah, go out from the ark. And Noah once more obeys God. The same thing he's done throughout the story. See, the timing of things is not up to us. The new creation comes in God's timing. Even Jesus had to wait three days in the grave. And then the new creation came when God raised Jesus from the dead. The church waited and prayed in the upper room. And then the new creation came at Pentecost when God filled the church with his new creation spirit. And now we wait. We wait for the kingdom to come in fullness. I mean, this world is broken. It lies under God's judgment, God's curse. Things are not as they should be. Things are not as they are meant to be. I am not as I should be. I am not as I am meant to be. There are moments when I feel like giving up, when nothing seems to be working right, and my best efforts seem fruitless. There are moments of of deep pain and trouble and and times and even lifetimes of sadness and sickness and sorrow. The the coronavirus, the, the Delta variant, yet another mandate. These are just par for the course of life in a fallen world. Broken relationships that just don't seem to want to be put right. Loved ones who persistently reject Jesus. Bodies that are breaking down. Sin struggles that just seem to hang on. Hopes and dreams that never come to fruition. Pains run deep and last long. How do we respond? Well, you might think God has forgotten us. God has abandoned us, but God has not forgotten. He, he, he has remembered us and he's acted for us in his son both in the cross and in the resurrection. He gave the most precious thing he has for us that all things might be put right in him. You might start to grumble, refusing to wait, wondering what is taking God so long. But we are called to wait, to, to wait on God, to trust his timing. He is doing something in the waiting. He is drawing us near to himself. Second Peter says God is being patient with us, giving us time to repent. And there's something else we're called to do, which is what we see Noah doing, which is looking for signs of new creation. The new creation will only come in fullness at Christ's return, but God is already at work in his people, in the church, in the world, and we must keep our eyes open, looking for the olive branch, as it were, looking for the signs of God's work and God's grace praying with our eyes open. And yet we must do more than look. Because of uh, Christ's spirit in us, we are part of the new creation, which means as we walk in love, as we walk by the spirit, as we practice patience, as we show grace to others, kindness in the name of Jesus, we are a sign of the new creation to come. We, the church, are the foretaste of the new creation. However bad, however difficult, however challenging things are, God has not forgotten you. And the new creation has already broken in. Wait in hope, looking for signs of new creation and by the power of the Spirit being a sign of the new creation to the world around you. Let me give you just a minute uh, to ask the Father to remember us in our troubles, to renew us by His Spirit, and to give us the patience to wait as we keep our eyes on Jesus, and I'll close us 
in prayer in just a moment. Father, do remember us in our difficulties and trials. Pour out your spirit on us in the midst of them. Help us to walk in a manner which is pleasing to you. And help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, to set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at your right hand. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.